Good morning. Uh, good to see you. We appreciate everyone uh, joining us on this holiday weekend. And uh, if you got a Bible, uh, let's go to Ruth chapter 1. We're in this st- series called Ruth, a story of romance and redemption. And uh, the first week we talked about the fact that God is faithful even when life's falling apart. Last week we talked about that uh, when we try to solve our problems our own way instead of God's way, that we make them worse uh, instead of better. Today we're going to talk about uh, turning to God. Um, we got three kids. <clears throat> the oldest is our son, who's 23. And when he was a, a little kid, I'm sure he loved me sharing this, but uh, it's part of what goes along with being a pastor's kid is sermon illustrations. That's just part of the deal. But when he, when he was a little kid and uh, we were trying to, to teach him something, uh, he would uh, say something like, example it to me, Daddy. Example it, Mommy. That, that kind of thing. And uh, I think we're like that, right? We, we like examples. We like things to be kind of fleshed out for us, uh, something tangible, you know, not just, you know, concepts. And really what we're going to see today, I think, is an Old Testament uh, example kind of fleshed out in someone's life of what Acts 3.19 says. And what's going on in Acts chapter 3 is really the, the first miracle in a sense, first healing miracle <laughs> anyway in the Christian church. And one of the first sermons that, you know, the Lord healed a, a man who was lame and uh, he's walking, running around, jumping around, praising the Lord, a crowd gathers. So Peter uses an opportunity uh, to preach the gospel. And he talks to him about Jesus and how faith in the name of Jesus have made this man well. And then kind of at the crescendo, of the sermon, he says to them in Acts 3.19, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And repent means to have a change of mind, that a true repentance leads to a change of action. But the word, uh, when it says be converted, it literally means to turn to God. And that's what we're going to talk about today. The title of the message is Turn. And we're going to look at the example of Ruth in, in, in the book of Ruth uh, here in the Old Testament and, and see that she turned from her sin and herself and her idolatrous background, her own religion, and she turned to God by grace uh, through faith and repentance. And I want us to see today that each of us is called to, to lay down our idols, so to speak, to turn from self and sin and our own self-will and to turn to God by grace through uh, faith and repentance. And we're gonna, hopefully we'll see in this message that faith and repentance are pretty much, uh, I mean, they're not exactly the same thing, but you can't separate them in Scripture. One theologian calls them conjoined twins. Where there's faith, there's repentance. Where there's repentance, there's faith. Uh, you know, if you believe, you're going to repent. If you're repenting, it's because you're believing. Uh, they're just inextricably really uh, connected uh, together. And, and so, as we're in the book of Ruth, uh, we looked at verses 1 through 7 of chapter 1 last week. And if you remember the story, uh, there's a famine in the land, probably because of God's judgment. It's said in the time of judges, the people are being unfaithful and, and, and idolatrous. And uh, Elimelech, uh, who's the husband, the father here, uh, tries to solve the problem his way, I mean, Moab looked like a solution because, uh, you know, there was rain there, there was food there. And so, you know, they leave Bethlehem and they go to Moab uh, because it looks like there's food there. But God would have never wanted them to go to Moab because the people there were idolaters. And what looked like a good uh, solution to his human sight, his human reasoning, turned into a disaster because when they went there, he died. Uh, his two sons married Moabite women, which, you know, went against the law. The two sons died, uh, as Warren Wiersbe said says, one famine turns into three funerals, and now you have Naomi left with two daughters-in-law, uh, Ruth and Orpah, that she's responsible for. But uh, through all this, you know, because the, the husband was the, so much the leader in the family, everything's connected to, the, to him then. Through all this, you know, uh, 
Naomi doesn't have a name anymore. She doesn't have a land anymore. She doesn't have an inheritance anymore. She doesn't have money anymore. She doesn't have a means uh, to, to make money. And now she's responsible. Uh, she's kind of the guardian of, of, the, of these two young ladies. And, and, and that's the background, the context for uh, the scripture that we're going to read today. Is we pretty much are going to look through the rest of Luke chapter 1. Now, as we come to this scripture, uh, it's really, I think it's a text that in one way is extremely culturally relevant, and in another way, it's very countercultural. And, and so, um, Missy Griffith uh, sent me a, a sermon a couple weeks ago about Ruth by, by Tim Keller uh, that's been very helpful to me. And so, you know, if you ever have something you think will be helpful to me, please send it to me. It may end up benefiting you at some point uh, if it helps me preach better. But, uh, you know, one of the things that, that Tim Keller points out in, in this sermon is that there's a sense in which Ruth was an immigrant, right? She's coming from the land of Moab, her own people, her own country, her own land, and she's going, you know, to a different place. And uh, I, I would think, uh, I mean, I've never lived somewhere else. I've traveled in other places, but like the first time you go to a new place, it's different people, different culture, uh, you know, different language, those kind of things. It's, it can be a little intimidating, right? So I would think it would be pretty scary to move from one place to the other. But, but something that he points out that I think is true, well, well, think about it this way. You know people that have immigrated to the United States from other places, right? Some legally, some illegally. But for however, whatever means they came here, why did they come? Better their life, right? Hope of a, hope of a better life. I mean, if you ever talk to somebody who said, well, I, I came here, especially somebody who came illegally, who, you know, went through all that and, you know, maybe mistreated in a lot of cases, they was, well, I came so I could have a worse life. You ever anybody say that? Doesn't even make any sense, does it? I mean, well, why would somebody uh, do that? I mean, they at least think, they at least hope that they're going to have a better life. Now, I, I would argue that's not necessarily what's really happening. You see, because, you know, this to a lot of people is, is like a media thing. You know, for me, it's very personal because of what we do in Honduras, because of how many times uh, that, that I've been there. And, and I've had conversations uh, with people in Honduras, either who were contemplating, uh, you know, trying to, to make it here. In fact, one of our pastors was uh, someone who wanted to move here uh, illegally and decided not to and ended up becoming a pastor. Our pastors down there teach them that they should follow, as they're a Christian, they should follow Romans 13, obey the law of the land, you know, that they shouldn't go somewhere illegally. But obviously, when you live in that kind of poverty and that kind of hopelessness, it, it, it's a great draw. But I think it may turn out in a lot of cases to be fool's gold. I mean, I, I've met people that have uh, talked to people down there that have, you know, come here, been deported, moved back. But what we're finding is when this happens, in a lot of cases, it may help their family financially, but it's destroying them in other ways. Uh, because you have uh, kids, teenagers, that are being raised by aunts, uncles, grandparents, maybe at best, and, and kind of whoever. And, uh, you know, Lori Arwood, our church counselor, when she was there in April, spent days talking one-on-one -on -one with teenagers at Brasovola High School who are cutting themselves and who have attempted suicide and all these kind of things because, uh, you know, it, it's messing up their families and it's messing them up on the inside, whatever is happening with it financially. And honestly, one of the, the purposes of our ministry in Honduras, not the main purpose, we're trying to reach people through the gospel and plant churches, but you know, with what we're doing with the micro businesses and uh, the, the, part, the Boys and Girls Club, the partnership with Brasovola High School, is we're trying to create a reason for people to stay and keep families together and give them hope and give them purpose and go to the root of the problem instead of just arguing about it with the whole world on social media. We're trying to make a difference right at the root of things. But, but I, I say all that to say this. It would make no sense for someone to go through everything you got to go through to go to another country, whether, like I say, legally or illegally, go through all the risk that comes with that, the, the challenge that comes uh, from that, if you thought it was going to make your life worse instead of better. I mean, that would just be completely nonsensical. But can I tell you that that's exactly what Ruth did. That's exactly what Ruth did. 
And if we understand that, uh, I think that's a key to understanding the message today and really understanding the story of, of, of the book of Ruth. Uh, she really kind of sacrificed herself, laid her life down because of a new conviction that she had about who God is. And because of her love and concern for Naomi, she kind of gave up her life to make sure that Naomi was going to have a life. I mean, think about it. She was going to a place of her enemies, I mean, the Israelites and the Moabites were in conflict with one another. I mean, it, it, it was dangerous for her to go there. And, and, and she's, you know, she's leaving behind her family. And, and what we're going to see here, you know, Ruth's going to encourage her to go back. Why? Because in, in that day and age, a woman's security was in her husband. Her income was there. Her protection was there. Her name was there. Family was everything to them. She had no real hope for a husband, if you just looked at it humanly at this point in time. I mean, you know, we've seen how God's faithful, God's gracious, God worked this out for them. But I mean, at this point in time, it made no sense where to go. Because why would a, a good Jewish boy marry a Moabite idolater? Wasn't supposed to. I mean, he's going to have to be disobedient to Scripture to do that. So, uh, and, and then what we're going to read here is they had, the, there's something in the law of the Old Testament where if um, a brother died and, 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 you know, his wife was childless, the other brother was supposed to, to marry this lady and have a child, and then and the first male child would take the name of, uh, of the, the previous brother and would keep the lineage going and would, you know, there'd be the inheritance and all that kind of thing. It was basically their welfare system. And as we read this, you've got to understand that background to say, Naomi's saying, I don't have any sons. I can't provide husbands for you. There's no hope if you go here. And, and, and so, uh, you know, as we read this, we're going to see she encourages them to go back. She's trying to take care of them. It's misguided, but she's trying to take care of them because she's saying, you go back to your home. Your parents will take care of you. They'll find you a husband. Then you'll be secure. Your needs will be met. Uh, you know, I can't provide any of this for you. I don't have hope. You don't have hope. It made no sense for her to go there because she wasn't going because there was the promise of a better life. She was going to a place where it looked like there would be a worse life. Why does she do that? I hope you understand that uh, by the time we're finished because I think as we understand this, it'll help us understand the gospel better. It'll help us understand who Jesus is and how he works in our lives. So, uh, you know, it's culturally relevant in that sense. But what we're going to see in this text is like countercultural in another sense because our culture tells us we can believe whatever we want, right? Truth's relative. It's kind of your narrative. It's your story. You kind of construct your own reality. We're going to see the opposite of that. Uh, you know, we can have our own gods. If we want to have a God, there's no such thing as an idol. You know, religion's a social, psychological construct. It's just something that's kind of passed down from your family. But you can do your own thing with it. That's what, that's what society tells us. But this text tells us, uh, the, shows us the opposite of that. Um, you know, society tells us it's your life. Nobody can tell you what to do. You do your own thing, right? You're your own person. You, you live your own way. This text is going to show us uh, the, the opposite of that. So, with that background, I hope we can uh, understand this really clearly as we walk through it. So, let's pick up reading in Ruth 1.6. Uh, it says, Then she arose, talking about Naomi, with her daughters-in-law, that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. So God was gracious. He's ending the famine. She hears this, and she thinks, man, maybe there's a chance that if we, if we go back, our needs can be met. Maybe we'll be okay. Uh, therefore, she went out from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi uh, said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. <clears throat> the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. So she obviously cares about them. She's concerned for them. She's wishing God's you know, covenant faithfulness upon them. She's affirming that they've been good to her and they've looked after her. And they've taken care of her. And then verse 9 is an interesting verse. It's basically a prayer. But do, do you know that we can pray misguided prayers? You pray misguided prayers sometimes. I pray misguided prayers sometimes. This is an example of a misguided prayer in the Bible. Because she says, The Lord grant you that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. What's the problem with the prayer? 
She's asking God to solve the problem by blessing disobedience and idolatry. She's saying, I'm going to send them back to, the, to these idol worshipers. God, you take care of them. So it's a good motive, but Naomi's faith at this point in time is messed up. Okay, she's not thinking right. She's, she's grieving. I mean, I believe she's a believer. She's got faith. But, you know, she's, she's looking at this the wrong way. Really, you know, we kind of talked about last week that Elimelech walked by sight instead of by faith, did live by conviction. He, he, instead of following God's word, he tried to solve his problems his own way. And that's really kind of what uh, Naomi's doing here. She's not walking by faith. She's not living according to the word of God. I mean, she's not being much of a witness at this point of time. And, and, time, and we'll see this even more explicitly as we read through this, it's like, you know, I love you, I care for you, I want to take care of you, go back to these other gods. I mean, that's, that's it's like anti-evangelism pretty much. Um, it says, so she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And when she kissed them, that was like her farewell. She's like saying, go on back. And really, she was kind of their guardian at this point. They should have listened to her. Um, but they say to her, surely we will return with you to your people. But then Naomi's persistent. She says, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb? They may be their husbands. This is what uh, leveret marriage, what I was referring to uh, before. Turn back, my daughters. Go, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and bear uh, son, also sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out again. Me. It's great testimony, isn't it? God's against me. I have no hope. I don't have a husband. I don't have sons. I can't give you husbands. Go back to Moab. There's nothing I can do for you. I love you. Oh, let them take care of you back there. That's basically what she's saying. It's pretty hopeless and, and, and pretty faithless, really. It says, then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So Ruth's not giving up. Orpah, though, on the other hand, is like, okay, I'm going to relent. I'm going to go back to my people. I'm going to go along with what you say. And, uh, you know, I'm going to go back here and let my parents take care of me. Let them find me a husband. Uh, you know, I'll find my security there. I'll find what I need there. And so, you know, uh, Elimelech uh, represents unbelief. He speaks of that to us. Naomi speaks of a grieving, struggling believer who's weak in faith. But Orpah speaks of someone, I think, who sees the truth and doesn't follow it. She reminds me of Pilate. You know, Pontius Pilate crucified Jesus. He recognized who Jesus was. He saw something different. He saw something special in him. But he capitulated to the crowd. He gave in to keep his job. He, he went along to get along instead of living by conviction and following Christ. I think about uh, Agrippa, the Roman ruler that Paul, uh, you know, shared his testimony with, shared the gospel with. And he's like, Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. But he hung on. And so many people are like them. Maybe some of you are like this. You're this close to the kingdom of heaven. You know the truth. You know who Jesus is. But you've never personally trusted in him and committed your life to him. You've never turned from yourself and turned your life over uh, to him. And listen, you can see it. You can know about it. But there has to come that time where you draw the line in the sand, say cross over, say yes to Jesus. I'm trusting you. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to live for you. Orpah was close, but she she turned back. And you know, there's Hebrew tradition that tells us, don't, you know, can't say for sure if it's absolutely factual, but that Orpah is one of the descendants of Goliath, the Philistine that David killed. It's kind of interesting to see where these two ladies uh, went. And then verse 15. So uh, Naomi again says to Ruth, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods Return after your sister-in-law. I mean, she's pretty persistent, right? This, this is like the third time. You need to go back with them. But here's Ruth's response, and we need to grasp her response. Now, these are the most familiar verses in the book of Ruth, I'm sure. Right? These verses, everybody's heard them at a wedding ceremony before. And uh, I'm, I'm not saying don't have these at your wedding ceremony. I think that's completely appropriate. I'm just saying... The meaning goes a whole lot deeper than the context of a wedding ceremony. This, really what this is, this is Ruth's profession of faith. 
This is her testimony. This is her conversion story. This, this is the recounting of her turning to Yahweh, turning to the real, the one true and living God. Ruth says this. She says, entreat me not to leave you. In other words, don't push me into doing this or, for, or, or turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. Even if it doesn't make any sense, I'm going to go with you. Even if it costs me, I'm going to go with you. Even if my life gets worse instead of better, I'm going to be loyal and faithful. I'm going to go with you. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and here's the key, and your God, my God. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to follow Yahweh. I'm going to turn my life over to him. I'm going to turn away from idols. I'm going to turn away from my religious background. I'm going to turn away uh, from my family, and I'm going to commit my life to him. And to you, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to go with him. Her faith caused her to do this. Her faith caused her to repent. Her faith caused her to turn her life over to him. She says, where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. The Lord, and here uh, she uses the personal covenant name of God. The Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. And then verse 18 says, when she, Naomi, saw that she, uh, Ruth, was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. In other words, Ruth finally just gave up and said, okay, come along with me. Whatever happens, I can't get rid of you, so I guess we're in this uh, together now. And so here's, here's the thing that I want you to get, and then we'll talk about, uh, you know, try to apply it to our lives. But, but, but here's the thing. I, I think what this speaks to us more than anything is that Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. Listen, I, I think a lot of times, and I preached this way earlier in my ministry, and a lot of preaching, it, it, at least to some degree, is like this. And some preaching, like the whole uh, health, wealth, and prosperity gospel thing, that's really no gospel at all, is this to a, to a large degree. But here's what, a lot of people, here's what a lot of people teach and preach. Accept Jesus, and he'll give you a better life. Accept Jesus and he'll make you happy. Accept Jesus and he'll fix your problems. Accept Jesus and you'll have a better marriage. Accept Jesus and your kids won't act like uh, crazy little squirrels running around your house uh, anymore. You know, accept Jesus and you'll be healthy. Accept Jesus and and you'll be in a better financial position. Accept Jesus and get this, can I tell you that is not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, uh, the eternal God, came and took on flesh. And in in his flesh, he bore our sins. He absorbed the wrath of God where those of us who are undeserving can now be forgiven of our sins, have a relationship with God that's satisfying, where we can have new life and eternal life because Jesus rose from the dead and he conquered death, hell, and the grave. And the gospel is Jesus Not Jesus plus something, not Jesus so you can get something, not the Jesus who'll do something for you. Because here's the thing, he loves you. He may bless you in a lot of ways. He may improve your life. You know, he took care of them, right? I mean, Ruth ended up with a husband. They ended up with provision. God was faithful. He loves his children. He blessed them and he met their needs. But there's no promise of that. She had no promise of that when she turned to the true and living. It looked like her life was going to be worse. But because of what she believed, she said, God's real. This is what's true. I need him. I'm going to follow him. And because of that, I'm not going to look out for myself. I'm going to look out uh, for Naomi. I'm going to look out for her. I'm going to take care of her. Because part of following God, part of loving God, is we love other people. And our life is not about having all of our needs met and what we can do for ourselves and what we can get and how people uh, can look after us. Our life then is about serving Jesus by serving other people and loving others and laying our lives down for for the good of others and for the building of the kingdom of God. And that's exactly what she was doing. She was dying to herself and saying, God's enough. God's grace is enough. And and, and the reality is this. You come to Jesus. I mean, he he says, you know, I'll give you an abundant life. I'll give you eternal life. You know, abundant life's on the inside. It's not on the outside. That's part of the problem with that whole line of thinking. Abundant life is on the inside, not on the outside. But the thing about it is this. God may, you know, your life may get better, but it may get worse. You may die. 
You know, there's a lot of places that you can't say, come to Jesus and prosper. The invitation is, come to Jesus and die. And the gospel is, come to Jesus and he's enough. Trust him with whatever happens after that. And listen, you know, if you're going through a hard time in your life, and you do, it doesn't mean that Jesus has changed, or that God doesn't love you, or he's not abandoned you. But if you feel that way, your theology is prosperity theology. Listen, we're all going to get sick and die someday or get run over by a truck or something's going to happen. Just because you get saved, God's not going to keep you from heaven. That's kind of the end result of it all. Jesus is enough. That, that's the message. We can turn to God because Jesus is enough. And, and so how do we turn to God? It's by grace and it's through faith and repentance. It's by grace, and it's through faith and repentance. Listen, if, if you don't have a relationship with God today, or you're not sure, or maybe, uh, you know, you've heard about all this, you know it intellectually, but are, have you really come to the place of saying, Jesus, take my life. Jesus, I'm trusting you. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to live for you. It's about you. I'm not putting conditions on you. Isn't that what we do a lot of times? Jesus, I'll follow you if. It's just saying, Jesus, I'm going to follow you, and the rest is up to you. Whether it's good or bad, you're enough, you're good, I'm going to trust you with the results. That's what it means to follow Christ. Is that where you are? Well, how can we come to that place? Like I said, it's by grace. And there's five things I want to point out to you about grace from this story. Grace, number one, is undeserved blessing. It's undeserved blessing. She was an idolater, an enemy of the people of God. I mean, there's a verse in the Old Testament that talks about the Moabites being excluded from the congregation of Israel out to ten generations. But you know what? Grace triumphed over all that. Grace is an undeserved blessing. Uh, we don't, God doesn't love us because uh, he, we're lovely. God loves us because he's gracious. God, God doesn't save us because of how awesome we are and how much of a benefit we're going to be to him. God saves us because of who he is. God's gracious. Grace is an undeserved blessing. The idea is, I mean, if you're going to be saved, here's what you have to believe. You, you have to believe I'm a sinner. I deserve hell, period. My only hope is the mercy and grace of God that comes through the cross of Jesus Christ. Apart from that, there is no possibility of salvation. Grace is an undeserved blessing. Listen, if we're a Christian, I mean, you know, we all we have our spiritual story, but at the heart of it, the root of it for any of us is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, that I am what I am by the grace of God, period. Second, grace is for the glory of God. I mean, the purpose of grace, the reason we're saved by grace, the Bible teaches us, is so we can't take any credit for it, that God gets all the credit. It's what he's done. It's not what we've done. It's saying, I can't do it. I, you know, there's nothing I can do to contribute to my salvation. Jesus, you did it all. So we praise you. We worship you. We brag on him and, and not ourselves. And like when you read this story, why is it in the Bible? The story's in the Bible to show us the character of God, the grace of God, the faithfulness of God that leads us to trust him and worship him and, and, and say, this is who God is. It's not ultimately about Ruth. It's about the working, the gracious working of God in her life and in our lives for the glory of God. Listen, th this is great. Grace is not limited by human barriers. Isn't that good to know? That grace is not limited uh, by human barriers. I mean, think about the barriers she was dealing with, her background, her nationality, her religion, her idolatry, her circumstances, the bad witness of her family. I mean, a lot of people say, well, I can't, I can't trust Jesus because of Christians. And, and I get that because uh, all of us, to some degree, and some people to a really large degree, are not really good representations of Jesus Christ. But here's the thing I, I would say to you. If, if you're not a Christian and you struggle with that, I mean, there's a lot I could say. I just say two things quickly. Number one, when you stand before God someday, he's not going to ask you what did so-and-so do with Jesus or how did so-and-so represent Jesus. He's going to say, what have you done with my son? And, and, and number two, the point of Christianity is not how well the followers live it out. It's how perfect the founder is. 
That's the issue. The issue is, is Jesus really the Son of God? Did he really die for our sins? Did he really rise from the dead? And here's the thing. Someone who's really a Christian will say, yeah, I'm messed up. I'm a sinner. I'm a hypocrite sometimes, or at least act hypocritically sometimes. Don't follow me. Don't look at me. Uh, I'm just a sinner standing in need of the grace of God. Anything that's good about me is Jesus in me. So don't look at me. Look to Jesus. But think about it. All these things in her life, the grace of God overcame. You know what? The grace of God will overcome all of these things in our lives as well. Grace is given, number four, through the finished work of Jesus on the cross. You know, we talked about the fact that Jesus is the kinsman redeemer here. But then number five, grace is what draws us to God. Listen, when the Bible says we're saved by grace through faith, faith is the gift of the grace of God. Repentance is a gift of the grace of God. You know, we can only come to God, you know, through the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We can't even come to him on our own. Jesus said, John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Listen, if the Spirit of God is drawing you, if he's doing a work inside of you, don't resist that. That's the grace of God bringing you into a relationship with himself. You have to respond in faith, yes, but at the end of the day, it's all by the grace of God. It's his work in our lives. And, you know, we can never come to him on our own. We don't deserve to come to him. But we can turn to him because God is gracious. And if we've been so unfaithful, but God is so good, why would we want to resist that? Um, Fox News, uh, the not the TV version, but the, the print version, the website, ran a story a few years ago about a couple by the name of Cindy and Chip Altimos. And um, they've been married for 10 years, but they were in the process of getting a divorce. And they were, they were separated. They had uh, agreed to date other people even, even though they were, they were still married. And he, he was in a relationship with someone else, Chip was. And this went on for like five years. I don't know why the, the divorce drug out so long. It didn't have those kind of details. But they were five years into this separation. He's in a relationship with, with somebody else. But he ends up in the hospital with kidney failure. His health's deteriorating rapidly. Unless something is, uh, happens quickly, he's going to die and his soon-to-be ex-wife that he was separated from, he's in a relationship with someone else, um, came to his rescue. And she said this when the media talked to her about it afterwards. She said that he was still my husband. There was no way I could walk around with two kidneys, and he had none. It was the right thing to do. So she agreed to donate a, a kidney, no strings attached, not like a better deal in the divorce agreement or anything like that. She, she gave him a kidney. The transplant took place on February 21st, 2007. And uh, funny thing happened while they were recovered in the hospital. They fell back in love. He broke off the relationship uh, with the other person. They stayed married. And... Uh, his thinking in this as he had a change of mind, it's a picture of repentance, was why would I want to date someone else when I have a woman who would give part of herself to me to keep me alive? Why would I want to date somebody else? Why would I want to be in a relationship with anybody else? And I think that that is a picture of the gospel. Why would we want to be in a relationship with any other God? Why would we want to, want to turn to the one true and living God when he literally gave himself, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to keep us alive? To give us, not keep us alive, to give us life. That, that's the grace of of God. So we're saved. We turn to God by grace, but then it happens on our side of the equation through faith and through repentance. Um, I wanna, I'm going to skip ahead just to, to chapter 2 in Ruth, just for one verse. There's a beautiful verse there, and it's actually Boaz speaking uh, to, to Ruth and. Uh, get into that. Uh, Preston Ford's preaching next Sunday. Get into chapter 2 uh, then. But it says, the Lord repay your work. And but this is Boaz speaking to her. A full reward be given to you by the Lord God of Israel. And notice this phrase, under whose wings 
you have come for refuge. That's her faith. Now, now think of the contrast here. What was Elimelech looking for? He was looking for human security. He was looking for food for his family. So where he fled to Moab for refuge. Where's Ruth fling? Under the wings of God for her refuge. How? Why? It doesn't even make any sense, right? From a human perspective, this man who had grown up, been taught the things of God, he's going to Moab, and this woman who grew up in this idolatrous culture, she's coming back to Bethlehem, uh, the, the house of bread, having this faith. But once again, that's grace. That's the working of the Spirit of God in our lives. We're not converted just based on human thinking. It's the supernatural work of God in our lives. I mean, Naomi, she's like, you know, go back here, go back home, find your security, find your husband there, let your family take care of you. And, and, and Ruth's like, no, I'm not going back there. I'm finding my refuge in the one true and living God, Yahweh. Um, and, you know, Orpah, she's like, she, she must have seen some of this stuff. She knew some of this. Apparently, you know, they had instructed them in the truth, but she's like, okay, I'm going to go back. But but Ruth's like, there's no way I'm going back. This is what I believe. This is what's true. I'm coming to God. This word refuge is a beautiful word in Hebrew. It it, it literally means a place of shelter. Shelter from a storm. Shelter in the high hills. Shelter under a rock. You know, it was used in some context of, you know, if there's war going on or if there's, you know, invaders or people trying to harm somebody, you know, running to the high hills there surrounding Jerusalem to find a place of safety, to find a place of refuge. It it came to be used metaphorically of confident trust uh, in a God or specifically in in, in the Lord God. She ran to him. She found her refuge, her hope, her strength in God instead of these other things. She said, God, you're enough. Jesus, you're enough. I don't know what my life's going to look like. It looks like it's going to get worse, but I want to know you. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to rely on you. I'm not going to these human things to find my refuge. You're my refuge. You're my hope. You're my strength. Listen, the idea is to not follow Jesus for what he can give to us, but simply because of who he is and what he's done for us on the cross. There's an example of this in John chapter 6. And um, in, in, in John 6, basically there's a couple of miracles that go on uh, early in, 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 the, in the chapter. First, Jesus fed multitude. The second, he walks on water. And the people kind of figure out that uh, something unusual had happened because they knew there were no boats and then they knew Jesus had gone to the other side and they're like, how did he get there? So they go around to, to, to find him. And um, in, in verse 25 of John chapter 6, they ask him a question. They said, Rabbi, when did you come here? And then notice what, how Jesus responds in the next verse. Um, he, he exposes their heart. He exposes their motives. He said, most assuredly, I say to you, seek me, seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. In other words, he's saying, you're following me, not because you really believe. You're following me because you think I can do something for you. He says, next verse, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. And they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus said, this is the work of God that you believe on him whom he has sent. We're saved by grace through faith, not by our own works. And then they say, well, you know, what kind of sign are you going to perform that we can see it believe in you? And Jesus is like, I'm not going to do a sign. He goes to the scripture. He quotes scripture to them. Uh, verse 31, our fathers ate the man in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven uh, to eat from, from the, quoting the book of Exodus. Jesus said to them then, and most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said, Lord, give us this bread always. And notice what Jesus said. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. You really want to have satisfaction? It's not what I can give you. It's not an external thing. It's not what, what, just what I do for you. It's who I am. It's knowing me. It's having a relationship with me. That's where our faith is. And then last, faith and repentance go hand in hand. 
uh, th- they go together. So, um, you know, repentance, it's like a U-turn. It's like, uh, maybe this is appropriate on Memorial Day. It's like soldiers doing a complete about face when they're in formation and marching together. It's going in a different direction because we've acquired some new knowledge about God and about our sin. And so we change our mind about God and sin and, and life. And out of that, we feel sorrow for our sins. And then the fruit of repentance becomes a changed life. And, and so, you know, here's, here's the thing with, with Ruth. Jesus wasn't like a life improver for her. Jesus wasn't an add-on. He was her life. It's like, my life's going to get worse, but I've got you, so I've got life. That's repentance. It's like, take my life. Jesus, it doesn't matter what happens. It, you know, I'm not going to play these kind of games. You do this, I'll do that. If you'll give me this, then I'll follow you. It's just like, whatever happens, this is tr- right. This is true. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to live for you. You know, Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose his life. But he who loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Is Jesus our life? Is he our refuge? Is that where our faith is? Have we repented? Have we had a change of mind that's led to a change of direction in our lives? Where instead of living for ourselves, we're really living for him. We're not on the fence, but we're truly following Christ. Not just that we've prayed a prayer or got some head knowledge or we've joined a church or supposedly made some kind of decision, uh, been baptized, been confirmed, whatever else, but that we are trusting in Jesus Christ alone. We're relying on the grace of God and we've turned to him. We've repented and been converted and that Christ is the Lord of our lives and he's our hope. He's our greatest treasure. He's our satisfaction. He's our bread of life. He's our living water. He's living in us and through us and we're living for him. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to have a relationship with God. We can't be halfway there. There's a story from the, the life and, and ministry of Billy Graham. Uh, I mean, I don't know how much you, you know about his, uh, you know, if you ever read his biography, that kind of thing. But, you know, when, when Billy Graham really kind of got big was in the, in the late 1940s. And he did this crusade in Los Angeles that lasted for a long time. And, um, you know, a lot of people got saved, including some, some of the high-profile celebrities uh, of, of the day. Um, you know, the, the, the movie that came out a couple years ago, Unbroken, uh, I forget the guy's name. I saw the movie, but uh, I don't remember what I'm talking about. But he was, you know, he was in a POW in the Pacific in World War II, and he was like an Olympic runner. He got saved at, at that Billy Graham crusade. But Billy Graham really got big when I think it was Time Magazine, Life Magazine, one of those, uh, ran this big story about him. Well, at this time, there was a guy who lived in Los Angeles who was kind of like the Al Capone of the West Coast. His name was Mickey Cohen. A famous gangster, very powerful, kind of uh, ran the city and out there and that kind of thing. And uh, one of his top associates, a man by the name of Jim Voss, um, got saved. I mean, and he really got saved to the point of his repentance was leaving the mafia. Which I would think you got to be pretty serious about that because that's probably not real easy to do. And, and so... You know, and they threatened to kill him. Uh, I mean, the story goes that they sent some hitmen to his house, and uh, he actually spent 45 minutes telling him about Jesus, and they just turned and left. And they kind of left him alone after that. He ended up starting a ministry, that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, he, he, he witnessed it to Mickey Cohen, and some other people did too. And, um, you know, Billy Graham uh, the, the had this kind of party from like a home in Hollywood. There's kind of some celebrities, that kind of thing there. Mickey Cohen got himself invited to that. Billy Graham preached the gospel. He, uh, Mickey Cohen indicated some interest in it. Uh, eventually went to prison for tax evasion. And after he came out uh, of prison, uh, you know, some people kind of tried to minister to him, help him out because he had lost, you know, his money, his position, all these kind of things. They began to witness to him. And at some point, he made a profession of faith in Christ. 
But so they, they, somebody flew him to New York where Billy Graham was doing a crusade, had him spend some time with him, try to disciple him, this kind of thing. And Billy Graham wasn't convinced uh, that he was actually converted, that he was truly saved, that he really, you know, understood it. It really had a, had a heart change. So I sent him back to Los Angeles and, uh, you know, the man who had, uh, you know, supposedly led him to Christ was trying to follow up with him, trying to teach him, trying to disciple him and, and that kind of thing. And, you know, really what he's trying to tell him is if you're going to be a Christian, you really have to follow Christ. And uh, this was Mickey Cohen's uh, response to him in, in, in his words. Um, so he says, you're telling me that I have to give up my career and friends? He says, there, there's Christian athletes, there's Christian movie stars, there's Christian businessmen. Why can't there be a Christian gangster? He says, if I have to give up all this to be a Christian, then count me out. And you know what the point of, the point of that is? You can't be like a hyphenated Christian. Right, You can't be a Christian whatever. Either we're a follower of Christ or not. Either we've repented, he's the Lord of our life, and, and we're trusting him, or, or we're not. We can't play these kind of games. We can't be ha- halfway. We can't say, well, I'm going to pray a prayer. I want to go to heaven. But it's going to be my life. I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to live my way. If that's how we think, we've never truly met the one who said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. And follow me daily. Listen, it's by grace. Jesus paid the price. But it's through genuine repentance and faith that we're saved. I'm going to leave you with one last little short passage of Scripture to make one last New Testament connection. Because, you know, we we may be like, and why why would somebody want to do this? Why would somebody want to do what she did? I mean, I mean, okay, it turned out pretty well for her if all this is true. But, you know, is it going to work that way for me? Maybe it's like you said. Maybe it's going to go badly for me. Maybe life's going to get worse instead of better if I follow Christ. I mean, you said she decided to do this. She took this step. She turned to God, even though it looked like it was going to make her life worse. Why would anybody do this? Well, John chapter 6 again. Verse 66, it says, you know, Jesus is doing these teachings, and it was like a hard teaching for them. It says, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. So Jesus asked the, the, the 12 apostles a question. He said, do you also want to go away? And I think Peter's answer summarized what Ruth did. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we've come to believe and know that you're the Christ, that you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. In other words, we're either going to turn to God or we're going to turn away from God. We can't be in the middle. We can't be on the fence. And this is the truth. Jesus is the Messiah. He died for our sins. He proved it's true by rising from the dead. Why would we turn away from him? Where else are we going to go? Where else are we going to find the bread of life? Where else are we going to find the living water? Where else are we going to find hope and peace and and, and satisfaction? Yeah, it may cost us some things. But the issue is, it's true. It's real. Jesus rose from the dead. So by the grace of God, turn to him. Repent. Trust him. Not for what you can get out of him. But simply because of who he is. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. And I, I want to give you a, a chance to respond before we go. Maybe for some of you this morning, the grace of God is working in your life right now. The Spirit of God is working in your life. And He's speaking to you. And He's showing you that you're a sinner. That you've rebelled against your Creator, against the Holy God. He's showing you that you can't save yourself, that your religion, your background, your works, your good deeds won't get you to heaven. He's showing you that Jesus died for your sins, that Jesus rose from the dead. And he's inviting you to trust Christ, to take your refuge in his finished work on the cross. Nothing else. 
to trust in him, his person, his work, his death, burial, and resurrection, to turn to him, to turn your life over to him by faith to begin to follow him. And if you know that God's speaking to you, he's revealed this truth to you, just encourage you to act on your faith. To right now commit your life to Christ, to, to be his follower, to ask him, and just encourage you, there we are, just to pray. Admit you're a sinner. Admit you can't save yourself. To ask him to forgive you of your sins. Ask him to come into your life and take control of your life. Just to take your hands off and say, Jesus, I'm yours. I belong to you. You're my Lord. You're my God. My life is in your hands now. Listen, if you'll do that, we read John 6, 37. No one comes to the Father. No one comes to me unless he's drawn. No one comes to the Father unless he's drawn by me. And he who comes to me, I will in no way cast out. I'm going to receive you. He, if you're trusting him right now, he's received you. You're his. You belong to him. He's now responsible for what happens in your life. Listen, if you, if you need to talk, if you've got questions, come see me or talk to somebody you know here afterwards or fill out the connection card that's in your bulletin and turn that in the offering boxes so we can uh, you know, follow up with you. If you've got questions or you made a decision to follow Christ, you need to be baptized, you need to go public with, with your faith. Listen, you, you can't be a secret agent closet Christian. If it's real, you got to confess Jesus before men. He said, whoever confesses me before men, uh, I'll confess before my Father in, in, in heaven. Jesus, we confess today that you're enough. Lord, I pray that you would uh, forgive us for when we don't rely on you, when we walk by sight instead of by faith, when we try to handle things and fix things on our own, when we try to use you as a means to an end. But we thank you today that you are the end-all, be-all. You're the pearl of great price, our all-surpassing uh, treasure, the one who is life, the one who makes life worth living. Lord, just help us to believe those things. God, give us the conviction that there's no one, nowhere else to go to, so we turn our lives over to you in faith and repentance. We walk with you. We trust you. We live for you day in and day out. We praise you for who you are. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your goodness, and we thank you for everything you do for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.